You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. Genesis chapter 20 is where we're going to be this evening. Genesis chapter 20, we're going to be moving as we continue in our study through the book of Genesis, through Genesis 20 and 21 tonight. And if you are taking notes, the title for this message is Relapse, Receiving, and Removing. Relapse, Receiving, and Removing. And if you're taking notes, that is also the outline. So I made it very easy for us all tonight to be able to move through this. And uh, as we've been studying through the book of Genesis, we've been familiarizing ourselves with, with this book and reminding ourselves of the author who is Moses, of the theme, which is that of beginnings, because we see the literal beginning in the book of Genesis of everything except, of course, for the Lord. And we know that the book of Genesis, well, it's broken up into two sections, each with four subsections, with the first section spanning from Genesis 1 to Genesis 11, looking there at the formation, followed by the fall of man shortly after that. Then comes the flood, after which is the fallout from rebellion. And we really saw the earth and humanity get its start there in those first 11 chapters. But currently, we are in the second section of the book of Genesis, looking here, and not at four great events, but at four great men. And we are currently looking at Abraham, who spans from Genesis 12 to 25. Next will come Isaac, who is going to be born today within our text, who will span from Genesis 26 to 35, following his life. After that comes Jacob from Genesis 25 to 49, and then Joseph from Genesis 37 to 50, as the Lord and the Word of God hones in on this one family and looks at these four men as they follow the Lord and follow Him with their lives. And as we continue within the narrative of Abraham's life tonight and really into next week, well, these sections, these chapters mark some pretty big moments in the life of Abraham. Where if you're familiar with the book of Genesis and familiar with chapter 20 through 22, well, you know that there are some big events that go on here as these chapters are where the faith of Abraham and the faith of Sarah and the waiting that they have been in, the mode of waiting they have been in as they follow the Lord, well, we finally see it pay off. Like again, as I said tonight, we're going to see the promise of God in Isaac. It's going to become a reality tonight. And as well, Abraham's faith tonight and next week Well, it's going to experience some testing as well, some rather intense testing, especially next week, because next week we'll take the entire night to look at chapter 22 on its own, as we have this big test of God calling Abraham to go and sacrifice his son Isaac there to him, and it's a test like Abraham has never faced before, but we'll get to that next Wednesday, so you'll have to come back for that. Because tonight we're going to see the Lord again working in and on the life of Abraham in some other ways. As we're going to see the promise of God come to fruition with Abraham here in Isaac. But we're going to open up tonight in chapter 20. And we see that Abraham, well, he's on the move again. Coming off of the events of chapter 19 with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, Abraham, to start the night off, is going to pull up stakes and he's going to move a bit. And as he moves to a place called Gerar, well, we're going to see that in this place, as we open up, and for you note takers, that Abraham, well, he's going to experience a relapse of sorts. A relapse of sorts as he moves with his family and continues to follow the Lord. So what we're going to do is pick up in verse 1 of Genesis 20, and we're actually going to read the entire chapter to get the full story, then we'll move back through it. But we're going to read the whole chapter, we're going to pray one more time, and then we'll keep going. So Genesis 20, verse 1 says, And Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur, and he stayed in Gerar. Now Abraham said to Sarah his wife, she, of Sarah his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, well, he sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, she is my sister, and she, even she herself said, he is my brother. So in the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I have done this. And God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. But now therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. 
But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, called all his servants, and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were very much afraid. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I offended you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done deeds to me that ought not to be done. Then Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you have in view that you have done this thing? And Abraham said, Because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will kill me on account of my wife. But indeed, she is truly my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came to pass, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, that I said to her, This is your kindness that you should do for me. In every place, wherever we go, say of me, He is my brother." Well, then Abimelech took sheep, oxen, and male and female servants, gave them to Abraham, and he restored Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, See, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. And then to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before everybody. Thus she was rebuked. So Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female servants, and then they bore children. For the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Let's pray together before we keep going. God, thank you so much for this day. Lord, so much for an opportunity and Lord, an invitation, an open invitation that we know is always there for us to run to you, to come into your presence and just to spend time with you. God, I just thank you. I thank you so much that you open that invitation, you call us to yourself, and I thank you so much for these here tonight and these watching online as well, who, who with so many options in this world of things we could be doing, Lord, we're here to hear from you. We're here to study your word and know you more, and I just thank you for that. I thank you for these Wednesday nights. And God, I pray that as we take this time and we seek out, Lord, the truths of your word and how we can know them and, Lord, how we can apply them to our lives, Lord, I pray that you would be our teacher, that you would meet us and continue to speak to us. And, Lord, as you do, that we would be ready to listen, that we'd be ready to listen. Our hearts and minds would be open to you to hear your truth and to know how to apply and to know how to live it out. And, God, I ask for your help expectantly because I know that you desire to help us. And I ask, Lord, expectantly for you to be with us because I know that you are. And so, Lord, in this time, dwell with us, lead us, be our teacher, and help us because we need that. And we ask for that now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we see here in chapter 20, again, for you note takers, this relapse in Abraham's life. And again, following the events of chapter 19, Abraham, well, he's back on the move. His life is, is honestly marked by movements. And, and perhaps not wanting to be close to the site of destruction and the memory of his nephew Lot there with Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham, well, he, he travels south. He travels south, going down to Gadesh and then to Shur, with, with him finally traveling actually north from there to settle in a place in the land of Gerar, which is located on the fringe, really, of the Promised Land, not too far from the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And you can see it on the, on the map there. There's going to be a magical arrow that's going to show you exactly where it's at. And as we read this chapter, you almost have to take, really, a double take. You almost have to take a double take at what you're reading because at first glance in this chapter, it almost seems like Moses, who is the author of the book of Genesis, well, it almost seems like he hit the copy and paste button, doesn't it? It almost seems like he hits the copy and paste button and takes the story from Genesis 12 and puts it here in chapter 20 as Abraham, who has been this this has been showing himself as just this absolute tower of faith throughout the past few chapters. Well, here he has a relapse into an old sinful state that you really would have figured he would have grown out by now. But yet, what we see as we open up in verses 1 through 2 is that there's, there's this familiar sin that trips up Abraham. As they enter into the land of Gerar, we see that Abraham, like in chapter 12, well, he tells, a, he tells his wife Sarah to, to, to play a part, to play that she is his sister, and if you'll remember back in chapter 12, as Abraham gets his, his, his journey start and they're in Canaan, there's this famine that's in Canaan, so they go to Egypt. You'll remember that Abraham, well, he speaks to Sarah there in chapter 12 about why, um, you know, he needs, to, he, he needs to play or she needs to play the part of his sister. He says in, in, in verse 11 of chapter 12, that indeed I know you are a woman of beautiful countenance. And because of her beauty, he was like, hey, Pharaoh's going to see you. He's going to want you. I'm going to die. And, and that's going to be it. 
Now, Abraham's concern this time around was probably not because Sarah looked like a young beauty at 90 years old. However, Jewish tradition does tell us that she was very beautiful. But more importantly to Abraham, and in his mind, he was more concerned with the fact that he was a very rich man at this time. Like as he was living in the land of Canaan, we've discussed often that Abraham, he was a wealthy man with a large entourage that would have followed him anywhere that he went. And the, the king of Gerar, this Abimelech, well, he would have noticed that. And as Abraham walked into the land of Gerar, well, it would have been Abraham's wealth that would have enticed him. And so he would have seen Sarah, he would have seen Abraham, seen all of his stuff and said, well, you've got to go. I'll take you as this political statement. And along with Sarah, well, he would take the wealth as well. So whether Sarah was still beautiful or not, she had a rich husband. And if they rolled in there, the king in Abraham's mind would have decided, hey, I want your stuff. I want your wife. You're out, Abraham. So here we go. And that was the thought process in Abraham's mind. So he compels Sarah again to lie, the same lie from chapter 12. And just like in chapter 12, what we see is Sarah, well, she goes along with it. And she is taken into the harem of Abimelech and Abraham. Well, he, he dwells freely in the lands. But I want you to notice that after verses 1 and 2, notice that we see God continue to be consistent in his character. He's consistent in his character, and he will not let the sin of Abraham go unchecked. And so verses 3 through 7, well, what they do is give us a window into this conversation, this dialogue between the Lord and not Abraham, but Abimelech. We see God's intervention. And we talked about before, again, how God, is, as we follow the Lord, as men and women who follow the Lord are going to walk and at times are going to sin, that God is not going to let sin go unchallenged. He's not going to let sin go unchallenged or go unchecked. He will mess with our gig and challenge our sin and our sinful proclivities so as to lead us to repentance. And that's exactly what he does here. What he does here is like he did with Pharaoh in chapter 12, is he goes to Abimelech and notice what he says. He goes to him there and in verse three, he says, hey, you're a dead man. And it's, it's very plain in the original language. Like, like, hey, bro, you messed up. You're dead. You're a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken. Well, he's another man's wife. And this got Abimelech's attention. It got it really fast. It got it really fast. And we have this dialogue again between the Lord and this pagan king that even while Abimelech is sleeping, well, he communicates. He communicates back and forth with the Lord. And he asked the Lord, he's like, hey, why? <laughs> he's like, you know, well, I did this. I did this in the, as, as an innocent man. He says, why would you kill an innocent man, a righteous nation? He exclaims that the move that he made, he made it innocently. He didn't know that Sarah was Abraham's wife. He's like, she said, or he said she was his sister. She agreed. So that's how we operated. And the Lord, notice what he does. He comforts Abimelech. He says he knows, he knows the fact that he knows that he did this in innocence and that he also has intervened into the situation saying that he kept Abimelech and kept him from Sarah. How he did that, we are not sure, but we know that the Lord protected Sarah. And we see in verse seven that the Lord says, having met with him, having scared him thoroughly, he now comforts Abimelech in this intervention. And notice that he says, and he makes here Abimelech accountable in the situation as he tells Abimelech to restore Sarah to Abraham, saying that Abraham, well, he is a prophet, that he will pray for him, and that Abimelech will live. However, there's a big but that he puts right there, saying that if he doesn't, well, then he and all that are of his house, well, they're going to die. And so what we have here is we have Abimelech, this pagan king who is just spoken to by the one true God. And what does he do? He wakes up, he gets his entire court together, his officials together, he tells them what just happened, and then they together, will they call Abraham in for some much needed confrontation. They call him in and Abimelech calls in Abraham. And I, I like to imagine the scene. I imagine Abimelech sitting on his throne. I imagine like the court around him, all his officials. I imagine Sarah somewhere off in view of Abraham as he's standing there. And he asks him in verse nine, he says, what have you done to us? He says, how have I offended you that you have brought on me and my kingdom this great sin? Abimelech knew that this sin, it wasn't happening in a vacuum. It affected them all. And he then says, what did you have in view that you have done this thing? And understand that in this moment, that this pagan king, this Abimelech, this pagan Canaanite king, he, he has the moral high ground, like he absolutely does. 
He has the moral high ground in this situation. And quite frankly, he keeps that high ground even as Abraham responds. Because Abraham, instead of responding in repentance, what Abraham actually does is he seeks to justify his sin. Did you notice that? Did you notice that? There in verses 11 through 13, I want to reread them so that we can see this freshly, where it says, And Abraham said, having been confronted by Abimelech, Abraham said, Because I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will kill me on account of my wife. But indeed, she truly is my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is your kindness that you should do for me in every place, wherever we go, say of me, he is my brother. Instead of repentance, what we have here is in three different tries, Abraham trying to justify his sin. Walk, walk through this with me. Notice the first thing he says in verse 11. He says, because I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place. He looked at where he was going. He looked and thought ahead, who is there? Then thought to himself, the fear of the Lord isn't here. And, and quite frankly, he was correct. The ones that were there, they weren't worshipers of the one true God. However, this was Abraham's excuse for his sinful deception. And the real problem here was the fear of God. Well, it wasn't that it wasn't in the land. It wasn't truly in Abraham. Because as he walked in there, a true fear of the Lord, a true reverence, a true experiential knowledge that Abraham should have had from following the Lord for over 20 years, well, it wasn't in Abraham. And where he said, I thought that the fear of the Lord wasn't here, truly what he was saying is, hey, it's not in me. I don't trust the Lord. I don't trust him. I don't fear him. His promises, his protection, Abraham, he should have trusted the Lord. But instead, he sought to press the blame on others. The second justification we see there in verse 12, he says, indeed, she truly is my sister. He's like, hey, we, technically, like we are like, you know, we, we have the same dad. We just don't have the same mom. And yeah, though that's true, it's a, he's a, he, he and Sarah are our half brother and sister. Well, still, she is fully his wife. She is fully his wife. And so even this half truth here, well, it still represents full disobedience. And the last one there in verse 13, it's a tricky one, but if you, if you pay attention, it's actually very reminiscent of the events in the Garden of Eden, where we see that he says, when it came to pass that when God caused me to wander from my father's house, that I said to her, this is your kindness you should do for me. In every place, wherever we go, say of me, he is my brother. Meaning that all the way back in Ur, there and back in chapter 12, 20 some odd years in the past, as they were coming out of the land of the Ur of the Chaldeans, and they are striking out following the Lord. Yes, they trusted the Lord, but they also had some, some underlying thoughts. They also had some thoughts in mind, and this was an indirect way of blaming God for the problem. As Abraham here, he claimed that God, well, he sent him out on this dangerous journey. He called me out of comfort. He called me out of my family's house and said, go, and I'll tell you when you get there, which is absolutely true. The Lord did that. But he seeks to say that as God called me to go on this dangerous journey, well, I needed to have a plan. I needed to have a plan. And so he, he, he shows that he and Sarah, well, they created a plan because they didn't. They didn't trust the Lord. And in three ways here, we see that Abraham, again, he tried to justify his sin by saying that, you know, I didn't know that you feared the Lord. She really is my sister, you know, halfway. And, and you know, like God, he called me to this. And so I needed to protect myself. And in reality, as he does this, all he did was show that he has a deep-rooted sin issue. And not just the sin issue that is inherent within every human, as all humans are sinful, but this specific sin of distrust that was present within Abraham. And you know, we've discussed time and time again, not just on Wednesdays, but on Sundays as well, that, that sin and temptation, you know, as we see that within the Bible, we are aware that we're all sinners. At least we should be. All of us in here are sinners. If that's a newsflash for you tonight, I'm going to tell you, the Bible tells you, you are a sinner. All of us, all humanity, we are sinners. And we have this inherent sin nature where we are separated from the Lord apart from Jesus Christ. But we've also discussed extensively how, as individuals, we all have a proclivity to specific sins in our individuality, right? Uh, like, as we are all individuals, we all have this natural bent and this natural bent to specific things. And this, this is true for just humans in general, not just with sin. 
right? Like, like we, we have different interests and different hobbies. We have different food tastes, different tastes in entertainment and movies and books and things. Like we're all individuals. We all have very specific tastes and very specific things that, that draw us and, 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 you know, appeal to us. And sin is another thing, specificity in sin and specificity in temptation. Well, that is also real for us as human beings, you know, that's what James says in James chapter 1 and verses 13 through 15, as he's speaking to the, to the reader there about, about walking with the Lord and about walking through trials and wanting to clear up any, any confusion. He says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted, he says, when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And then when desire has conceived, he says, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, well, it brings forth death. See, James is saying, and we need to realize that no one is tempted by God to sin because God, well, he's not the author of evil, nor does he lead to evil. But we are tempted, the Bible says, when we are drawn, when we are enticed, when we are lured in, by things that we innately desire. Things that we innately desire and those desires, understand, are as individual as we are individual. Those desires are as individual to us as we are individuals from one another. And for whatever reason, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's because we as humans innately like comfort. Like we like comfort. Like there's certain things that we like to hold on to and, and like we like, we like consistency. Whatever it may be, like what is displayed here with Abraham, there always seems to be one or two like set sins or set sinful like desires or proclivities to sin that we as individuals that we hold on to. And what's more, not only do we hold on to them, but we also seek to justify them and, and seek to justify them avidly. Like we learn here that from the very beginning of God calling Abraham and Sarah to get out of their homeland there in the Ur of the Chaldeans, like, like we learned that from the onset, that though he displayed, displayed great faith in getting up and going, that he worked a contingency plan into that move, like from the very beginning. And because of the fear of the Lord wouldn't protect them and lead them as he promised to do, we learned that from verse 13, that Abraham and Sarah, well, they had agreed that in every place, the Bible says, that wherever they went, that she was to say, hey, I'm his sister. That wherever they went, the Bible says she was to say that he was her brother, that she was his sister. And we only know, you know, from scripture of two events, but we also know from scripture that they've covered a lot of ground, right? Like as we study the life of Abraham, we study the journey. I mean, just going from Ur to Canaan was over a thousand miles. There was a lot of ground that they covered, a lot of places that they went to, a lot of people that they met, and though the Bible only tells us specifically of two, the text would indicate that whether or not they made this claim openly, well, they always had it chambered, didn't they? They were always ready to go with this story. They were always ready to go with this contingency plan. Wherever they went, they had agreed that Sarah was not his wife, but was his sister. All because, hear me, of distrust in the Lord all because of a desire to hold on to, to control and to be ready to help God out should the need arise. Should they come into a place where they feel that God and the fear of the Lord isn't with those people? Hey, Lord, guess what? We're ready for this one. We've got the plan, buddy. We are going to be safe because we came up with this plan. All because they didn't fully trust the Lord. There's this deep-rooted distrust. And for Abraham, it was distrust. It was a lack of faith that he had that drove him a few times to help God out in protecting him from harm. We have it in chapter 12. We have it here. But we also see it in the, in the child of the flesh, in Ishmael. We see it that all the way back a few chapters ago where Ishmael is produced, again, that was God, uh, that was Abraham not having full trust in the Lord, but seeking to help him out. This distrust, this sin of distrust that we see here that Abraham displays, it was deep-rooted. And, you know, perhaps distrust is that for you as well, because that's still something that, that can be deep-rooted within each of us, but perhaps it's something else. You know, we here in this room, as there's all of us in here, what is represented here is a lot of individual bents to certain things, certain desires and proclivities to, to things that we like and things that are not good for us. And you know what trips you up as you walk in this world and walk with the Lord? It may not trip me up and vice versa. You know, we're all individuals. I, I know for me, you know, I have a very addictive personality that plays out in me being drawn away and enticed by things that I quite frankly don't need to put in my body. 
And my testimony is one of coming from that life, of putting things in my body to excess that never need to go in anyone's body, quite honestly. And I know that in my flesh that I justified that. And I know that in my flesh still, I could still seek to justify that and justify any of my sin so as to try to make myself feel better about it. But as those who are called to follow the Lord, and as those who are called to walk in a relationship with him, a relationship that is out of the old life and into the new, well, like Abraham was called to trust the Lord and to walk with him and to follow him, well, so too are we, and to put our full trust in him and not allow those things to stick around not allow those things to exist within our lives. And to no longer allow them to stay around, no longer seek to justify them, but to deal with them and allow the Lord to deal with them, allow the Lord to deal with them as he wants to, as well to remove any justifications that we could give or make for them. And the Bible says that as we are in Christ, that we are to walk as, and, and identify with them. They were to walk in a way and no longer were to live the way that we used to, letting sin stick around or living as if we're slaves to sin. You know, that's what Paul says in the book of Romans. And in fact, if you're reading in the one-year Bible with us right now, we read this just this morning. We're in Romans 6, verse 11 through 14. Paul there says, So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. And this is from the New Living Translation. I really like how, this puts, how, this, how that translation puts these verses. As he says, continuing on, do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give into sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. But instead, he says, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of of God's grace. Paul there says, as you're saved, so live that way. And it's not unlike what, the, what we see in Galatians 2.20, where Paul says there, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, in Jesus Christ, we have a new life, in this new life, walking and following the Lord in faith. It's called to be a life of faith where we follow him. And anything that we bring from our old life into this new life, well, it needs to be reckoned as dead and gone and allowing the Lord to deal with it. Not seeking to continue to walk and live as we once were, but living as the Lord saved us. Whatever we have as we walk and live with the Lord, the same consistent sin that we hold on to, that we justify, it doesn't need to stay. We don't need to allow it to live on any longer but we need to follow the Lord and walk as he leads us, walk as he desires to lead us, trusting him and seeking what he would have for us and seeing the, the, the old go. Otherwise, like Abraham, we consistently will fall. Otherwise, like Abraham, the relapse will be more regular. Otherwise, like Abraham, we'll be consistently in a place where, yes, we're walking with the Lord, we're going forward in the plan that he has, but everything that the Lord wants to do in our lives, we'll stagnate that, we'll stop that because we're still holding on to something that the Lord wants us to give up, that the Lord wants to deal with, which is exactly what we see if what we've seen happen. What we saw happen in chapter 12, what we see happen tonight in chapter 20, what we see happen back in the chapter, back in chapter 16, there with, with Ishmael being born, we see here Abraham not fully surrendering to the Lord. And I pray that that would be an example to us. And as we see here, Abraham, as he's, as he's faced and he seeks to justify his sin, he doesn't have a leg to stand on. And so what happens is we see as we finish out the chapter that Abimelech, notice how he, how he turns him loose. Abimelech still has the upstanding. He still has the moral high ground here. He there gives them sheep and oxen, male and female servants. He's like, hey, here's some stuff. Please, in fact, here's some land. You can live here. You can be at peace here. And notice the real, the real slap comes when he says there to Sarah in verse 16, he says, then to Sarah, he said, behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. She's like, hey, here you go. You're, you're free to go. Your brother is given this money. Live in peace. Just please leave now. Like <laughs> Be done. And Abraham, it says, prays for them. And it says there, so Abraham prayed to God. God healed Abimelech, his wife and his female servants. And they bore children for the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah Abraham's wife. And so we see this chapter in, this chapter of relapse, 
This chapter of relapse and this relapse in faith here in Abraham as he moves forward, well, prayerfully, he's learned a lesson. And I do believe that he has because of what we're going to see as we continue on. As we continue on, and we do continue on now as we move forward to chapter 21, what we're going to see as we open up here is, is that both Abraham and Sarah are about to experience the faithfulness of God really firsthand. And they have been all of their journeying. But it really reaches its pinnacle here as we open up in verse 1 of 21 with this receiving of the promise of the Lord in a, in a very special way. Read with me in verse 1, where it says, And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. And now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and all who hear will laugh with me. And she also said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, for I have borne him a son in his old age." Chapter 21, in, in juxtaposition of chapter 20, just opens up on such a high note, doesn't it? Like, I just love it. I love chapter 21 as the promise of God to Abraham and Sarah. Well, it's made a reality. This promise that they have held on to and been walking, looking forward to for over 20 years. And exactly as God said in chapter 18, after this year's passing, God met them, caused Sarah to conceive, and gave birth to the promised son. They named him Isaac, and he was named, he was circumcised in the eighth day as God has commanded. Abraham, it says, was 100 years old when Isaac was born. And it's just this amazing moment in the narrative, this amazing moment. And this amazing moment, if you put yourself there in the shoes of Sarah and Abraham, like, you no, know, no, Sarah, she laughs, she says. And this time it's not out of scoffing and disbelief, but it's out of joy of the promise of the Lord coming about. And I, I just love that. It's just one of those things where, quite frankly, you just, you just focus on it. And you just focus on the fact that the promises of God, that they are true, that they are right. And you know, something about this, something about having this promise realized tonight within the text, that's, that's encouraging. But it's also a good moment for us to be able to reflect and to realize that the promises of God, the promise, let's say the promise specifically of Isaac coming to Abraham and Sarah, well, it was just as much of a legitimate promise when it was made at the front end as it was when it was delivered upon here right now. Uh, like the promise of God, and we need to be more in the habit of, of realizing this because this is true for our life. We need to remember that it's not the promise coming to pass and the joy of the, of the event that makes that promise true. Uh, like we talked about this not too long ago on our Sunday mornings as we're studying the book of Second Peter, that in Jesus Christ, with the knowledge of him, the relationship with him, we're giving all things that pertain to, to to life and godliness, to the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. And it is by that glory and virtue, that goodness, that unchanging character of God, that all the promises of God are given to us, that all the promises of God are given to us and that we can bank on those. And I say that, and I point that out here in this amazing opening of this chapter where the promise of God is realized for Abraham and Sarah, because we need to remember that the promises of God are true and they are right, even before they ever come into a physical form in front of us or wherever we see them come to pass, not because of the fact that they will come to pass, but because of the fact that God made them. The promises of God are good and they are right. They are true. We can bank on them and trust in them and should walk in them, not because they're going to come to pass one day, but because the Lord has made them. And those promises, they're great and we should trust in them. And I say that because oftentimes if the Lord has made a promise to you, which he has, I mean, if you're in Jesus, the promise of heaven, hey, it's for you. The promise of heaven, life eternal with him, life eternal, his presence is another promise in this world, being able to be steadfast in the living hope that we have in Jesus. That's a promise that we have. Those are promises sometimes that we look for the deliverance on, don't we? Like we look for the end. It's like sometimes we turn on the news, we walk outside, especially when it's this hot. I mean, weather like this. I'm like, Lord, just come now. It's gotta be cooler in heaven. Please take me there. Let's do that. Uh, like I'm looking for the promises of the Lord to come to pass. But I also need to remember that the promises of God and the goodness of God who makes those promises are just as true as I'm waiting on that promise to come true. 
that the promises are just as good knowing that they've been given and even looking for the end, they're still just as good because God is good. And because the God who made the promises is true and he's right and his character is perfect. And so maybe tonight someone in here needs to hear that, hey, the promise that the Lord has made to you, whatever it may be, the plan that God has for you that he's leading you in, that it's still good. And that it's not that when you get to the end that you're truly going to see the goodness of God and experience the goodness of God. You will because he's good and he's going to be good at the end. But he's good now. And the promise that he has made you is good now. And so don't be like Abraham who can relapse or like so many of us who can relapse in doubting the promise of God or trying to help that promise along. Trust that it's good. Trust that it's good because God is good. And bank on that. Live in that. I don't know, maybe you need to hear that tonight. Someone does. So there you go. But along with this receiving the promise, it's such a good, such a good opening. There's another testing of faith of sorts that comes with this receiving. Whereas this receiving of the fruition of this promise and the promised son of Isaac, well, there also comes along with it this removing of the flesh. This removing of the flesh that we're going to see as we read through verses 8 through 21. Pick it with me there in verse 8 where it says, so the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham, he made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham scoffing. So therefore she said to Abraham, cast out this bondwoman, her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. And the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice, for in Isaac your seed shall be called. Yet I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman because he is your seed. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and putting it on her shoulder, he gave it and the boy to Hagar and sent her away. Then she departed and wandered into the wilderness of Beersheba. And the water in the skin was used up, and she placed the boy under one of the shrubs. And then she went and sat down across from him at a distance of about a bow shot. For she said to herself, let me not see the death of the boy. So she sat opposite him and lifted her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the lad. And then the angel of of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, what ails you, Hagar? Fear not. For God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. So arise, lift up the lad, hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. So God was with the lad, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. And he dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt." As we read here and move from verse 7 to verse 8, there's a a, a period of time that has passed. And the period of time, the span of time is from verses 7 to 8 is three years. And this is the case because it it says that that it was when Isaac was weaned. And traditionally, children in that culture were weaned at age three, which would put Isaac again at at three years old. And Ishmael, who notice his name is not not mentioned here um, as as we read through this, what we notice, what we should see here is that this would put him around age 16. And the Bible here, it shares of the joy of Isaac's birth, of the weaning of Isaac. Abraham, he throws this massive party, this great feast. And it is in this time that Sarah notices that Ishmael, the 16-year-old son, is scoffing at Isaac. And some translations may say mocking, laughing at, making fun of. The New Testament book of Galatians actually speaks of this event as Paul is there referencing uh, of the need of, of newness in Christ and not walking any longer under the, the bond of the law and the flesh. And there in Galatians 4.29, it actually says that Ishmael persecuted Isaac. And Sarah sees this, it upsets her. And as Sarah sees this, she tells Abraham in verse 10, she says, cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. And as she says this, the Bible says that this matter, well, it was very displeasing to Abraham because of his son. And it speaks of Abraham's son, not speaking of Isaac, but speaking of Ishmael, meaning that as Sarah came and said, hey, kick them out of here, that his heart dropped for his son Ishmael. And and it's understandable. I mean, you think about it. 
I mean, Ishmael for 16 years, I mean, he is legitimately Abraham's son. Like he is his biological son. He's the son of the flesh and the son of compromise, but yet he is his son. And so there's this father-son bond, this relational currency that Abraham has here with Ishmael. And that could possibly be why he was so upset. But more than likely, this was another issue of faith with Abraham. This is another issue of faith, and I say that because notice what we see the Lord speak to him in verse 12, as it says, but God said to Abraham as he's upset, he says, do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of the bondwoman. He says, whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice. And this is key. He says, for in Isaac, in Isaac, excuse me, your seed shall be called. And if you take consistent the mode of operation and the, the, the things that we've seen in Abraham's life, a consistent theme of Abraham, the father of faith, has been a pretty consistent lapse in that faith. And so it's very likely that as, as here, Sarah is saying, hey, kick the bondwoman, kick this son out of here, get them out of here. It's very likely that Abraham saw Ishmael still as a contingency plan of sorts, that he still saw Ishmael as this little bit of insurance, if you will. You know, just in case something happened to Isaac, let's just, let's just keep this one around. In case something happens, I mean, uh, traveling, living in tents, the wilderness, who knows what could happen to this young boy in this, in this world. So let's just keep him around just in case. But again, the promises of God then as they are now are what the followers of God needed to bank on. The followers of God need to bank on the promises and can bank on them and any contingency plan of the flesh, which is exactly what Ishmael was at this time. Well, they needed to be surrendered. They need to be left, or in this case, cast out, let to go. God wanted Abraham's understand his whole attention, his whole devotion to be wrapped up in the promise that's found in Isaac, no longer holding on to Ishmael, no longer holding on to Ishmael and seeking to hold and control the situation in case God fails. And so as, Abra as Abraham's wife, Sarah says, hey, cast them out. I indeed, she's in the flesh. Like, let's be very real. Like, she's in the flesh in this moment. Like, she sees this and she's like, I don't like this kid in the first place. So the tone of her voice may not necessarily be virtuous, but the Lord does use this opportunity to speak to Abraham and says, yeah, they do need to go because you're holding on to him. They do need to go because you're still keeping them around in case I mess up. And the same thing is true for us, friends, that as we follow the Lord and as we are called to surrender to his plan, whatever that plan is that he has for your life specifically and for us as the church corporately, that there are things that we can bring into the equation that we think this will help the Lord out or I'm gonna keep this around to help God out just in case he fails. And understand that all those things that we would hold on to, all those plans, those contingencies that we bring to the table, the Lord, he doesn't need them. The Lord doesn't need them. And we, as we hold on to them, what we can do is we can handicap the Lord in our mind. And as Abraham did, we can stop trusting him. As Abraham did, we can stop trusting the Lord and stop walking forward in the faith that God has called us to walk in. And it's easy for us to do. I mean, let, let's be very real. It's easy for each one of us to, to think that way because this world, it's hard at times. This world, it, it's, it's, it throws things at us as we walk with the Lord, as we live just normal life. You know, things break, things fail, relationships get hard, jobs get lost. We're called into things perhaps that the Lord has for us that are scary. Like I think about church planning. That was the majority of mine and my wife's marriage was church planning, moving to McKinney when we were only married for like two months and just being terrified. But we did it because the Lord called us to. And then after two years of being in McKinney, we moved to Colorado and then back to Texas. And all of it was like, okay, Lord, what are you doing? You're calling us and this is scary. And it was very easy, especially in some seasons to say, you know what, Lord, you need a little help here. You know, Lord, I'm kind of scared of this financial situation. You know, the, the, the attendance in the church is dipping a little bit. You know, maybe I should make a plan in case this whole thing just like doesn't work out. Like, I know you've called me to be a pastor. I know that you're going to supply all my needs, but maybe I should do something just in case. And each time the Lord was like, you dummy. <laughs> Come on, man. Like each time the Lord just in his love was just like, no, I, I, I've got this under control. I don't need your help. I just need your trust. I need your following. I need your surrender. And the things that you're holding on to, well, those need to go. 
The things that you're holding on to, those need to be surrendered and dealt with. And every time I doubted, every time I thought I needed to hold on to something or get something to help the Lord out with, the Lord always, again, spoke to me and said, you don't need that. Trust me. Walk with me. And God showed up in major ways, ways that I would never have expected. And in the same way that he showed up for me, he'll do that for all of us. He does that for his people as we follow him. But he calls us to trust him. And he calls us as he wants to lead us to give up things that we're holding on to. Give up things that perhaps we're holding on to thinking that what if you fail? What if you mess up? What if you don't show up? And the Lord's wanting to show us and encourage us that he's going to show up every time. Maybe not in the way that we think, maybe not in the way that we expect, the way that we want even, but the Lord is going to be faithful to do so. So in the same way that the Lord wanted Abraham here to bank on Isaac and the promise wrapped up in Isaac, he needed to let Ishmael go. So too for us in our lives. Perhaps there's something tonight that you need to let go of that you have in your back pocket that you're waiting to help God out with. Maybe there's something you know the Lord's calling you to do and you're ready to step out, but only after you have certain things ready to go, certain things that you have to help you out with it, to help you out or to help the Lord out as you walk. If they are, surrender them. If they are, surrender them. And there's another thing that we see within this that really goes in line with it, that goes in line with the sin of distrust and the lapses in faith that we notice within Abraham, that his sending out of Ishmael, his sending out of Hagar, well, it's also a great picture of what it looks like to surrender the flesh, of what it looks like to deal with the flesh in the way that God calls us to, of dealing with sin that we can harbor and hold on to, that we're comfortable with when the Lord is calling us to walk in a new life. You see, Ishmael, again, he, he, he's a product of the flesh. He's a product of compromise and, and, and coming up and scheming of how to get God's will done in a fleshly way. And that was not approved of by the Lord in the same way that our flesh, our sin, it's not approved of by the Lord. In fact, the Lord calls us to, to deal with our sin. And in the same way that we see Hagar and Ishmael sent out, see them cast out, well, so too is the Lord calling each of us as we follow him to cast out our sin, to no longer walk in it, to no longer walk in the flesh, but to, but to cut it off, to remove it. And so whatever besitting sin that perhaps you carry with you, whatever consistent thing like Abraham with his distrust, whatever thing you carry with you, and the Lord would speak to you and to me, myself tonight and say, hey, if it's there, it doesn't need to be. If it's there, cut it out, get it out, cast it out, and do so in a way where, where it won't survive. And this seems harsh, and it is harsh. Like you notice, as Abraham sends out Hagar and Ishmael, as the Lord said to he sends them out with, not with like this great provision or with this invitation to come back if it gets hard. He's like, here's some bread, here's some water, bye. And that's it. And it's this great picture of how the Lord, as, as he calls us to himself, he calls us to deal with sin and to allow him to deal with it ultimately. He calls us to deal with issues, to deal with sin, to deal with our flesh and allow him to deal with it ultimately. Which he does, and we see that wrapped up in Hagar and Ishmael. We see that God continues to be consistent, holding to the promises that he made to Hagar all the way back in chapter 16. As he told Hagar as she was there with, with, with child, that he said, hey, I'm gonna make your child that's not even born yet a great nation. And he dealt with them in the same way that the Lord wants to deal with us and deal with our sin. We just have to be willing to hand our sin, our flesh, our ideas, our plan over to him and allow him to deal with it. And he deals with it perfectly. Every time he deals with it perfectly. And again, that's what we see at the end of, of this chapter. You see how God deals with Hagar, deals with Ishmael. He keeps his promise. And I'm actually going to leave you to read the rest of chapter 21 on your own as you see another inter interaction with, with Abimelech and with, uh, with Abimelech and with Abraham. And it's a very different story this time. It's very good. And I fully believe it's because Abraham, well, he's in a different spot. I believe that Abraham is in a different spot where at the beginning of this evening, we saw him in a relapse. We saw him in a place of relapse where he went back to the same, back into the same mode of distrust and disobedience to the Lord. We saw that. But as he was confronted with that, we saw that as he was confronted, he moved forward from that place of failure and the Lord met him. And the Lord encouraged him with the receiving of the promise of Isaac, but yet still within that promise of Isaac being fulfilled, well, there was still some work to be done. 
where this removal, as he continued to move forward in the, in, in the, in the, in the plan of the Lord, this removal of the flesh, this removal of the compromise, this removal of the contingency plan, well, that had to take place, and it did take place. Where we see Abraham standing in front of Abimelech in a more bold way, trusting the Lord. And next week, as we get to chapter 22, we're definitely gonna see Abraham trusting the Lord. As we get to this story, this great test of faith that Abraham has here, as the Lord calls him to take his only son Isaac and to sacrifice him there before him. And that's for next week. And again, the rest of 21 is, is for you to read on your own, perhaps tonight as you get ready for bed and things like that. But as we get ready to go our way, having seen what we've seen tonight, I, I think it's important for us that as we follow the Lord and as people who are of the Lord, called to follow the Lord, that we take time tonight to investigate our life. And take time to allow the Lord to investigate our life and to reveal to us and to be open, honest with the Lord and allow the Lord to be honest with us and us to be honest with ourselves and allow the Lord to point out within us anything that we're holding on to. Anything that we're holding on to as God has called us to follow him and to walk with him, whether it be a contingency plan or some insurance thing that we have in case the Lord, you know, messes up that we hold on to, that, that we know is of the flesh, that we know is not of the Lord, that we know is a distrust in the Lord, and surrender that tonight. To give that to the Lord and to allow Him to deal with it. Or maybe it's not an area of distrust or some insurance plan that you have, some contingency that you're holding on to. Perhaps it is just flat out sin and rebellion. Perhaps tonight you have this besetting sin, this thing that you've held on to for years that you're comfortable with. Perhaps you're hiding it, perhaps you're not. But whatever it is, it's stagnating your walk with the Lord as sin always will. It's destroying your life and your walk with the Lord. And what the Lord would have us do tonight is release it, is get it out, cut it out, cast it out and allow him to deal with it. But it takes us, friends, it takes us admitting that those things are there and admitting that they don't belong. And in doing so, admitting that we're wrong, which is the hardest part admitting that we are not in the right place. We are not in a place perhaps that uh, the person next to you thinks that you are or that the person that you live with, uh, your family, your husband, your wife, your roommates, your classmates, your coworkers, perhaps there's this thing that you hold on to that you need to let go of. And tonight is a great opportunity for each one of us, each one of us to allow the Lord to look into our heart and life and to point out and say, hey, uh, that thing that you have right there, yeah, that needs to go. That thing that you're holding on to because you think I'm gonna mess up, that needs to go and the distrust needs to go along with it. Or that sin perhaps that you're looking forward to engaging in after service tonight, that sin that you pull out whenever you're feeling low, that idea, that thought, that thing, that act of rebellion that you walk in, hey, that needs to go. And as we allow the Lord to speak to us, well, then allowing him to work on us and work in us as we surrender those things, as we cast those things out and let them stay out, well, that's what's needed. And so tonight as we end, I pray that we would do that. I pray we take the example of the story here of Abraham as he cast out the bondwoman, as he cast out Ishmael and relies fully upon the Lord and fully upon the Lord to deal with the sin, to deal with the issue and to lead forward from that point. That's what he'll do with us, friends. That's what the word of God says that the Lord wants to do with us as we are no longer identified, we are no longer old, but we are new in Jesus Christ, no longer identified by our sin, but identified by our relationship in Jesus Christ, having been identified in his death, burial, and his resurrection. Well, the Lord wants to lead us. We just have to be willing to be led and take steps forward as he leads.